We are living through a time that could have been born from a fantasy or dystopian novel. So, what would a writer in that genre think about living through a global pandemic? In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Russell Nolte, a USA Today bestselling author, about his reflection on humanity during crisis, how his perspective has shaped his creative journey, and how through dark times, he maintains hope for our future. I think that in the darkness, all you have is hope. You have the glimmer of hope that it can be better, that we'll be able to wash ourselves in the sunlight again. And so even in the darkest moments, I tried to have hope. As you go through the journey of this episode, we'll explore what inspired Russell's writing and his perspective on humanity. He expresses a range of observations and opinions with direct honesty, ranging from the personal to the political. You may not agree with Russell on his views, but I recommend that you stay until the end to hear a very powerful message of hope, as well as my reflections on how conversations like this may help us look squarely at discourse, determine its impact, and explore how rooting ourselves in a foundation of strong community may help us build a better future. Are you ready to see where this journey takes us? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Russell Nolte, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure. So I am a USA Today bestselling author. I am the publisher at a small press called Wannabe Press that publishes mostly comics, but also some novels and uh, all in the sci-fi and fantasy and mystery and horror space. But I would say still uh, about 90% of that is fantasy. So mostly a fantasy publisher. And most people know me for publishing comics, although we have gotten into a lot of novels in the past year. Then I also run a training academy called The Complete Creative, along with The Complete Creative Podcast that interviews creatives about how they built and sustained their creative business. That's awesome. So I know a lot of your writing tends to be fantasy, um, some of it kind of more on the dystopian angle. Yeah, so I write, I've written a couple of dystopians and a couple of apocalypse stories, for sure. So I would love to get your perspective on this time that we're living in now, obviously highly disrupted by a pandemic, people having high levels of disruption in their own lives, trying to determine what this point in time means for us as people or us as a society, or maybe us in the future, what are some of the observations that you've had? And maybe how does that tie back to your writing or some of the things that you've kind of envisioned? Well, I'm certainly a lot more hopeful than I was before this pandemic started. You know, I don't have much faith in humanity, or I didn't have much faith in humanity and how they would perform in a crisis. But I am pleasantly surprised at the fact that we're willing to tank our entire economy to protect the most vulnerable among us. It's a good sign for the future because we're going to have to do the same thing when it comes to global warming and probably for another pandemic. And it's good that we have a blueprint or we're starting to come up with a blueprint of actually what has to happen for us to save this planet and that, you know, we're doing okay with it. We're not doing great. It's not amazing. It's not like the best time of any of our lives, but we are able to survive and subsist while we're working to protect the most vulnerable among us. And if we can foster this spirit 
beyond just this coronavirus pandemic into how we go about saving the whole world, I think we're in good shape. Of course, I still don't have much faith in humanity that we're going to do that until it's too late. After all, most of what has transpired in America is because we were too cocky and brazen and our leadership disbanded the pandemic council and started to like pull away from global pandemic responses and stopped funding the World Health Organization during a massive crisis and didn't pay attention to other people who said that it was going to be bad. But if we can maybe learn from that, then we have a chance. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. The air has never been cleaner here. I've heard that. Yeah. That's remarkable too. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what 14 million people not driving around will do to the environment. I mean, <laughs> again, it, it, it took a pandemic for it to happen, but you know, we actually see just how quickly mother nature can start repairing herself in the fact that we've been basically quarantined as a country more so in other parts of the world. But we're starting to see things like the Venice canals get bluer again. And you can see the skyline over a lot of cities in China again. And there's very little smog in Los Angeles now. And I mean, it's very hard. But I think we're going to have to do some very hard things in order to survive as a species into the 22nd century. And we should get used to them now because it's probably not going to get better in the future. It might get better in spurts, but eventually it's going to be 2030. And uh, we're going to have to cut carbon emissions by 3% or we're going to be like completely screwed as a species. And look at what we can do if we're pushed to the brink. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting to think about that. If the new behaviors that we're creating right now, because simply we can't travel to the same extent as we did, because we're mostly isolated to our homes, our consumerism has decreased in general, because simply people are either out of work or are um, financially disrupted or supply chains are disrupted in a way that makes it very difficult to purchase items the same way we used to. And one of the arguments that I, I have or one of the kind of observations I've had through this is that people are starting to change their priorities around what they actually need. Yeah. And not only that, but they're actually interacting with each other more than they were interacting with each other before this pandemic. I'd read an article that was saying that human contact between like two people or like the people reaching out to each other is significantly up since people have been quarantined. So there's some good signs there. I mean, one of the things that has always been frustrating to me and many other people is that we have this idea that work can only be done in an office. And disabled people, a lot of people who work in remote areas have been trying to convince us that like you can be as effective and productive at home as you can in an office. Right. And this is going to give us some fascinating data about whether that's accurate or not. And it's going to, I hope, convince people uh, and convince companies that like most work can be done remotely. And uh, I know once I went remote at my last job before I started this company, I never went back. So I'm hoping that if companies can allow remote work 
or be okay with remote work now, they'll be more open to it later, which will then stop so many people from having to commute every day. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of people that still have to commute because like there are brick and mortar stores that have to exist. But a lot of the commuting problem is people going to office buildings when they have no need to go to office buildings. Yeah, right. I feel like there's a lot of folks that are going to build, again, new patterns of behavior, new levels of comfort with working remotely. And, you know, to be mindful, you know, some folks do better working remotely than other folks. Some folks are very outgoing. Some people are very extroverted and want to be around other people. But the reality is, is that we figured out this opportunity for us to be able to, as you kind of mentioned, widen the workforce and open the doors from an accessibility perspective to people that may not be able to physically get into an office effectively and allowing them to find work with a meeting that they're perfectly capable of doing from their homes. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there are some other things the opposite way. I mean, there's some There's some less positive statistics about how cases of domestic violence are up 300%. Oh, yes. So it's not all rosy. No. A lot of people also want to leave their house or need to leave their house because it's the only chance they get to be away from, you know, their abuser. But as a net whole, if we can deal with those less good cases, it could help a lot of people be able to get to work or find work that is fulfilling to them, as you said, in a way that they can be productive. Like I've never met someone who is disabled, and I know many who don't want to be productive members of society. A lot of it is society puts all of these barriers on them that prevents them from doing things that they're perfectly capable of. Right. The idea that we have to go into an office like we've been talking about is the perfect example of one. Like most jobs don't need an office. Like you can do them perfectly well at home. I was the sales manager for a sales team and I did that from California while my sales team was in Dallas, Texas for close to a year. I didn't have to be there. I listened in on their calls. I talked to my boss and and I did trainings over Skype or whatever the Zoom was back in like 2014, 15. And it worked. I mean, we were as productive as we were when we were in the office. Now, all of those people were in the office uh, and I was at home, but I still was able to manage that team without ever meeting them. I never went to Dallas to meet them in the whole time that I was remotely sales managing that team. And we still did perfectly okay. Right. I mean, there's certainly benefits to -to face-to-face contact, but to your point, what it really comes down to just getting work done, and you can do it effectively remotely, there's no added value or limited added value for having that physical work location outside of your home. So you brought up a really interesting point. For some people, or actually for all of us to some extent, let's just be honest, all of us are struggling with something now because there is just a lot of things for people to have to adjust to based on our lives being disrupted, based on uncertainty about the future. But when you think about the people that are really struggling in the moment, I think one of the things that I hope for, it's kind of your point, like people coming together, stepping up and doing what's right, people starting to find new creative solutions to serve these populations that are at risk because of being stuck at home. And hopefully that translates to some new solutions in the future that help keep people maybe safer. Absolutely. I mean, look, we're we're entering a new paradigm, right? Yes. Uh, so, well, I hope we are because the old paradigm sucks. I mean, <laughs> so 
let's talk about how bad it is that like we are forced to trade our precious time for money uh, working a job that we probably don't like for way less than we're actually worth. But the idea that if you make $100,000 a year, you're basically valuing your time if you work a 40-hour work week at $50 an hour. So that's not that much for like an hour of your life that you can literally never get back. And just the idea that we're all okay with working at crappy jobs for crappy pay and doing things that like, not only do we not like, but we often downright hate just so we can afford to transact fictitious green currency for necessary sustenance is a ridiculous concept. Like if I were to explain that to an advanced civilization, they would think that it's ridiculous. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work. I'm saying that like, the way that we work now is absurd. Uh, and not so much in other countries, but in America, we don't even get health care, which means if you lose your job because you get sick, like you are screwed. You can do COBRA for like three times more money, or you can uh, not have health care, or you can try to get an ex- on an exchange if there's an exchange in your state that like is up and functional and actually works properly. But all of these ideas, the ideas that your employer, the company that you work for, if you piss them off, they could just literally pretty much increase your chances of death by an exorbitant percentage is absurd. It's absurd. It is an absolutely absurd thing. And the idea that in America, at least, your self-worth is pretty much determined by how much earning potential you have is ridiculous. Self-worth is intrinsic to humanity. Like just the fact that you exist grants you equal self-worth to Bill Gates or Tina Turner or anybody, anybody else. But that is not how we judge it in the world and not just in America, but all over the world. But especially in America, we believe that if you make more money, you are worth more than people who make less money. And that is freaking absurd. And if nothing else, I hope that this pandemic shows you that it could literally be anybody. Now, this is where I'm a a bleeding heart liberal. And I think that even Bernie Sanders is too far right for me. So like this comes from a place of like being a progressive human and arguing with people that all we've been trying to say for decades is that this could happen to anyone and it's not their fault. Like that's the only point we've been trying to make is everybody should be covered and given a floor because literally anybody could deal with this. We are all currently dealing with this, but before we were all dealing with this, it would hit sporadically anybody. Literally anybody could happen at any time. Your 401k could be wiped out. I know millionaires who've had their business manager steal everything from them. And it's not like it's just the poor. It's anybody could be hit by an incredibly unfortunate series of events at any time. And the fact that we cannot accept that fact and work towards a better world is very sad. And I hope that now... 
that we're literally watching, all of us have to deal with it. Like every single person in America right now has to deal with the fact that they did not cause the pandemic. They are not responsible for the pandemic. It's not their fault they lost their job. It's not their fault they were working in a non-essential field. It's not their fault that like their great aunt or their grandmother contracted a disease that killed them. And now they have burial expenses and all of this. None of this is any of our fault. And that's literally all we've been trying to say for a decade. And I hope, if nothing else, that people understand that a serious life-changing event can happen to anybody at any time. And like we should have a floor that people cannot fall below, whether that is unemployment or UBI or Medicare for all or whatever that thing is. This could happen to anybody. And I don't think any human being right now is out there being like, well, I don't want my stimulus check because it's from the government. And if you look at other countries, I mean, like, look at Canada. I mean, they're providing more to their constituents than here in the U.S. But certainly, yeah, nobody's complaining about the stimulus checks. And everyone called Andrew Yang crazy. If this happened two months earlier, would Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang or one of those people be our nominee right now? Because... They were literally right. Like they were correct in what they prescribed as the problem with America. And the problem is that we've been fed this bowl of horse crap for so long that like anybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like make it that we are now all just displaced millionaires waiting for that invention. And some of that is good because like it spurns innovation and it spurs investment. And that's great. But for 99% of us, we are never going to become millionaires. We are never going to get above our station in life. And God bless the people who were under monarchs. They understood this concept of like, it is not fair that the proletariat or the working class is not rich, but we also will never be rich. There's nothing that we can do to get into that class. But what we can do is protect ourselves from the whims of the oligarchy. And I think because we've been free for so long, uh, you know, over 200 years of not having any ruler, we don't understand that general concept of like, the rich are going to get theirs and give you nothing. So we need to all take care of ourselves because unless they anoint us and bless us with money, like the one in a million that they do just to make it seem like capitalism isn't actually serfdom, we got nothing got nothing to like fall back on. We are so much closer to being bankrupt and homeless than we are being rich. Mo- almost everyone in this country is less than three months from being homeless. And not one person in this country is three months from being a millionaire. Yeah, certainly not common. Sorry, I'm a, I, I, I have very strong feelings about this specific topic. So I can tell. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to say this as well. I believe every person is entitled to express their opinions, whether they be political opinions, whether they be opinions on what can make our world better. And all of those opinions matter. 
So, and I'll just say this too. I want to give you a lot of credit for having the courage to come and be on the show and talk about your ideas. Because I feel like there's a lot of interesting things through here. Number one, I can kind of get a feel for probably what has led to your loss of some hope and humanity that led to some of the writing that you do around your, your apocalyptic themes, um, more dystopian themes. I feel like that's been somewhat of an influence there. Is that true? It's true. So if you look at most of my books are mythology and monsters. And in this world, regular humans get dicked around by gods and they kind of fight back against their fate. And for me, the gods represent the uh, ruling class of people who are trying to impose their fate on humanity. And the main characters represent the working class or the proletariat or the proles or the average Joe in America. And their goal is to fight against what they have been told is their destiny. Even in my book, The Vessel is about a girl. That's like my true dystopian. That's my only true dystopian novel. It's about a girl who lives in this bubble a million years after the end of the world. And her town is one of the last left. And it is ruled by five sort of godlike figures who kind of control everything about this city. So they control the agriculture, they control the breeding, they control the air, they control the force field that protects everybody from their fate, from the outside where like uh, they've been told that everything is nuclear, is like unsafe. And in this world, this girl, uh, one of those five sort of godlike figures dies. And when one of them dies, it institutes this thing called the transference, where every generation, the five transfer their bodies into new individuals. So the one person dies and they realize that their bodies are frail and weak. And so they call for this other transference event where they're looking, literally looking for new vessels to like inhabit their bodies and take over and overwrite them. And so this girl decides to go and try her luck to be a vessel because if she becomes one, her family will be taken care of. She'll be, they'll be literally one of the random people that are plucked up to live in like for generations, they will live a life of plenty. And so she goes to this center and she competes. And during that, she learns about all of the political machinations, all of the lies that they've been fed, all of the deceit, all of the like criminality of the rulers of this city and how they view the people who work underneath them or for them. And so it's kind of a running theme among all of my books that like, I'm not a big fan of the rich. And I'm not a big fan of people that try to control other people and feed them comfortable lies instead of telling them harsh truths. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective too. You know, I think a lot of our perspectives on these type of things are shaped by life experiences, our observations, our personal values. Um, so, I mean, what what do you think in relation to your own journey in life? Maybe your own personal values have gotten you this place where you're very passionate about the position that you take in relation to these issues that are really very pro-social. Thinking about the struggles that real people have and how we all work together to resolve those struggles that everybody has, regardless of blame, regardless of people ending up in circumstances that, you know, are not in their control. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just, I've been very proactive in my life about knowing that nobody was going to hand it to me. 
you know, my dad worked as a bureaucrat in the government for 40 years or 30 years or a long time. He was in the army and then he was, uh, and then he worked a job that he just despised. And he'd always be like, just, I'm doing this so you don't have to. Don't do it. Like, don't do this thing that I have to do because, like, I'm doing this so you don't have to, like, that you can have whatever life you want. But I always knew going back, even when I was a kid, that nobody would give it to me. Like, I wasn't lucky in that respect. Like, I, I'm lucky in the fact that I am a white middle class male in America. So, like, I'm already playing the game on easy. So, like, in that respect, I like lucked out. Right. But in the respect of, being the guy who like makes the great American novel and gets plucked from obscurity. Not only did I not want to, but it just seemed completely implausible that you could build a life on that. So my life for a long time before I even started writing was about how do I make my own luck? How do I take control of my own destiny? And even if it means that I'm never going to be a millionaire or I'm never going to get read or seen by millions of people, my book's never going to get taught in school, like at least I will be writing full time. At least I'll be being a full time creative. At least I will have some agency in this world. And I don't know, like I can't remember a time where I would see somebody not choose me and then not get kind of irritated at that. Not because I was the best. But because I let my destiny be put in the hands of somebody else. And anytime you let your destiny be put in someone else's hands, it's a really fickle thing because suddenly they control whether you succeed or fail. Whether it's an investor or a studio or a publisher or something else, it was not in my control. And I do not like when things are not in my control. It's not that I'm a control freak, though I probably am. It's just that I know that behind the levers of power, there are very powerful men and women who will only grant you money or power or privilege if you play the game their way. And their way means understanding that they are in power and you are subservient to them. And maybe if you do play the game long enough and you get warped and corrupted long enough by them, you will then be able to create your own agency and have your own platform. But like, it's whether they deem it. And I just, I absolutely hate that. Like, I absolutely hate that idea that like somebody else will determine whether I can be a writer or a creative or a podcaster or a filmmaker. And frankly, for most of the entire history of the world, the only way you could hope to make it was to kiss the ring of those kind of people. And what I love about my lifetime is we've come up with ways that you don't have to kiss that ring. You can make your own value. It's longer and harder, but it also grants you the freedom and agency to build your own path so that when somebody comes and says, I really like this, I'd like to invest, you can say on my terms, okay, like I don't need you. If you want to, you can come on my terms. Again, I don't remember a time when I didn't feel like that. And I think it comes down to like, I just never thought that I was the best or I never thought that I would be like Steven Spielberg. I hope that I could be like Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith put 26 grand on a credit card and made a movie and that movie made his career. And then he went and toured for years around the country 
playing that movie and playing his movies and building his thing and doing things his own way. And he's never made a major motion picture. Uh, He's always made like smaller movies, but he's had the career that he wanted or that he made for himself. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about what success might look like for you. And I'll say this too. A lot of the things you just talked through are really related to human nature. So I think a lot of people want to feel like they're in control. It's probably why a lot of people are really struggling at this point in time, because we none of us feel like we're in control of the circumstances. And that's difficult to navigate. Maybe the barrier to entry right now to a lot of these things that you mentioned, these creative outlets are probably lower today than they have been in the past. There is some cost barrier to entry for some things for people to really be successful, but most people can go start a podcast by making a choice. Uh, Most people can go create some level of content and put it out on social media by choice. And I think that's an interesting kind of place and time we're in to see if people learn from some of their frustrations like you did. You had things you just got really frustrated about and then you wanted to take action to do something about it in your own way. And I love the fact you brought up to the point of personal agency, because I feel like that's critical for people to find the things that are important to them, that they're passionate about, and then take the steps that they need to take in order to make a difference in those areas and help, again, shape the future. Yeah, I get told a lot that it seems weird that I am a progressive liberal and so much about your personal choice and destiny, because it feels like big government and personal destiny are at odds with each other. but. I actually think the opposite, like at least with a government, I have the option to vote somebody out. Like I can work really hard to vote somebody out of office. So I believe in government because I believe in the power of people to vote and vote out people they don't like. I don't think that we do a great job of it right now, but at its base, like I have the ability to kick out anybody. I can work and I can activate my local community and like I can get a measure passed or get a measure thrown out. I can get an elected official voted out or office or voted into office. And like, I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. And like, I believe in that those elected officials then should go to Washington or wherever they are, Sacramento and LA or LA or the board of Long Beach where I live and do the things that the constituents want. It irritates me when that doesn't happen, (laughs) but at its core, I do believe in like that is the best path forward is that like we use the leveraged power of the government to fulfill the needs of the people that are in its constituency. Because I do also believe in the power of scale and working with a lot of other people and a lot of other nations and a lot of states together then have a much greater leverage power than any one human or individual by themselves. So while I do talk about personal agency a lot, I believe in the power of community. I think it's the most powerful thing that we have going for us as individuals. I believe, and and entrepreneurs in my case, or writers, is the power of my community and the people that I serve. Because that is how I feel about the people who buy my books, that I am serving them. I am giving them books that they want, that I am writing that I want to write, but like I am serving their needs. And that is why they buy my books because of that back and forth between that I am giving them something that they want and thus they are served. And so they will buy the thing that I make. And so while I do believe in personal agency, I also flip that around and say, once I've grown that community, 
they're not there for me. I am there for them. And the more that I can give them, the better I will do. The more I can align with their vision of what they need, the more I will get in return. And so it's kind of those two are admittedly hypocritical and kind of antithetical ideas, but they also work perfectly in my brain because I'm sort of out there carving out my own personal destiny and the people that follow behind me or with me or around me, I am responsible for them and making sure that I lead ethically, responsibly, and in a way that will make them proud. Yeah. I don't think that those ideas need to be mutually exclusive. I believe that there is an aspect or an importance of individual agency for us to be able to express what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and what we believe in, what our values are. But that in turn, of course, can help connect us to other people that have shared values or shared interest in making a difference in certain areas. And so that goes into that other argument that you made around the power of community, because that is immensely important. And I think now we're feeling that in this moment, maybe more than we had in the past, because like you, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that people are connecting more today because they feel the need to, or they're more aware of the importance of that connection than they were in the past. And I'm hoping that that's one of those things that we learn from this moment and carry forward as things start to open up when we venture kind of back into the world. I hope so. So over the past three weeks, 17 million people in America have filed for unemployment. Right. And it's scary that so many people's fates are in the the hands of somebody else. And I know I keep coming back to it. I feel like a broken record sometimes, but I hope that after this calamity, we're able to understand that fate is better off in our hands. I'm not saying don't work for a company. Like there's a lot of strength in working for a company and some people are just not entrepreneurs, but a lot of people go through life without much of a community to support them or to back them. A lot of people move away from their home and they come to a new place and they don't integrate inward and they stay alone and they don't they don't develop a community around them. And having that community, whether you are writing books and you're building a business or you're you're helping a youth softball league, you're running for town council, or you're just inside of a VW hall or like whatever it is, that community aspect is so vitally important to your sanity and your survival. You know, we come from hunters and gatherers who lived in units of roughly 150 people, and we can't go it alone. That's not how we got here. We didn't get here by going it alone. We got here by forming strong bonds and communities. And yes, being smarter than other animals in the ways that we needed to, to connect dots. But, you know, we're a lot more like ants than tigers. Yeah. And I think we start to feel that more and more now since we're forced into some, some level of isolation that is impacting some people more than others. One of the things I want to bring up, and I just kind of got back to something you said earlier of people having some level of false sense of security before the pandemic hit, that normal that we had then or that paradigm that we had then, which wasn't necessarily working to your point, but people felt that it was more stable than it actually was. And I think a lot of people learned that we as individuals, as a community, as a society, or as a human race um, are more vulnerable then maybe we realize we are. And I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are around 
that idea about people having maybe a false sense of security in the way we lived before, and maybe now are starting to learn how truly vulnerable we are to um, different types of threats, whether it be a pandemic now or the environmental concerns of the future. Well, I mean, I think if nothing else, people understand that two weeks can like change your life. Uh, we didn't even know what coronavirus was really in the beginning of March. Uh, you know, we heard about it, but like it was very far off. We're like, oh, well, that's across an ocean. And like by the end of March, like our literal entire world has changed. Right. We're not good at dealing with things in the future. And I hope that we can understand that planning for things in the future is what will save us from going through this again. Things like global warming are coming and they might not come, but when they come, it might come this quickly. I mean, something could literally change your life in one month. And a lot of people know that. A lot of people know uh, that these things can change in a month. Like my mom and dad are divorced. In one month, they were together and living together. And one month, my mom had to go get a job as a teacher again because like they weren't living together anymore. And my dad had to go and rent an apartment and like their lives were literally uprooted and turned around and we had to move to another house and we had to do all sorts of stuff. And those things happen just because every month has looked similar does not mean next month won't change everything. And I hope we can look back at this and understand what literally every human who's gone through something like this has gone through. Like I have Graves disease. I didn't have it always, but one month I had it, you know, I was jittery and I was felt like I was going insane. And I found out that all my thyroid levels were off. And suddenly I had to like go to a new normal. And for the rest of my life, I have to take these stupid pills to make sure that my thyroid isn't wigging out. And so I went through a car accident once. I was 2008. I went to a car accident. For six months, I was in a neck brace. Before that, I was the executive producer of a internet television network. After that accident, I was fired. You know, I was a fashion photographer before that moment. And after that, I couldn't hold the camera. You know, one day, me and my wife were living in our house. The next, uh, we got tented for termites and we came back and uh, half of our stuff had been stolen. So like... All of those things are like literally just things that one day you're not doing this and the next day you, you're you this person. And, and now I'm a human who's like been in a neck brace and been in six car accidents and, and like had a bunch of my stuff stolen and like failed three companies. But like before then, you're not that person. And one month can literally change everything. And when that happens, we need the power of a community. And we need to be vulnerable enough to say, I need help. And if we fear that, then it's very hard for us to survive. If we don't feel safe in the community, if we don't feel safe with the people around us, then it's very, very hard to keep going. It's very hard to feel a sense of balance, of safety. And, you know, I see all the time on my Facebook feed, someone's like, well, I just found out I have cancer now. And like, wow, that person's whole life changed. And God, I hope they have insurance because who knows what happens if they don't. It's happened to me like four or five times this year where like friends of mine, one day they didn't have cancer and the next day they had somewhere between stage one and stage four cancer. You know, my dad went from thinking he had GERDs to having stage four esophageal cancer, like literally in a day. And he was dead like a year later. 
all of these things can like very easily happen to anybody. And when they do, we need strong social safety nets. And I'm not just talking about Medicare for all or universal basic income or unemployment or any of those things that I believe deeply in. What I am talking about is some sort of social network that you have that you can reach out to so you don't feel like you're doing it alone. And I feel like in America, especially, we've been feeling like we have to do it alone for way too long. And now we're paying the price for it. A lot of countries that have a lot better social solidarity, like the UK or France or Italy, or they're able to bind together better than we are. Because their whole history is built on, we will all suffer a little, so no one has to suffer greatly. Yeah, I think it's some of those cultural differences that even the thing that came up before I started recording here, Russell and I were having a conversation about the simple question all Americans ask one another, how are you doing? And we typically give a canned answer like, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. How are you? But all of us, and I've noticed that that wasn't just me and Russell. I asked Russell the question and he told me how he was feeling. And I applauded him for that because it was very honest about things just being (laughs) kind of difficult right now. Um, But I'm wondering if those types of cultural shifts will lead to the type of connection and community that you're describing if we just start to interact with each other uh, quite differently and maybe more honestly than we did in the past. I hope so. So honesty comes from vulnerability and vulnerability comes from safety. And I feel like even though we might have thought we were safe, the lack of vulnerability in American culture overall kind of shows that like we really didn't feel safe because we weren't safe to be vulnerable and we weren't and we weren't vulnerable enough to be truthful. And those three things kind of come hand in hand and I know I'm not the most positive human being in the world, but like, I I hope that we can change. Like if we can't change from this, then I don't know. Like, I don't know what hope we have of like changing in the future. I'm very heartened by the fact that at least in California and most of the country, most of the people I know understand like the scope of what we're dealing with and they're doing the hard things. They're all sacrificing a little. So no one has to sacrifice greatly. And That's the kind of world that I want to live in. That's the world that I want to propagate. And I hope that's the world that we're moving toward. Yeah. You know, I think maybe this might be a shift for you too. It sounds like you're generating more hope for the future based on some of the things you're observing now, especially in the relation to how people are supporting one another and how people are finding the value of connection. I hope so. I hear hope a lot from you. Well, I mean, I think hope is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm wondering if that hope leads to some level of optimism for you for the future. And if so, what are you optimistic about? I think that in the darkness, all you have is hope. You have the glimmer of hope that it can be better, that we'll be able to wash ourselves in the sunlight again. And so even in the darkest moments, I tried to have hope. In all of my books, I hope there's a through line, at least in most of them, that there's hope in the hopelessness. And we're in a pretty hopeless place right now, but we're also in a pretty amazing place where we can connect with each other in a way that we haven't before. We can reach out to each other. We can understand what it's like to feel alone. And it's kind of wonderful in that respect. So, I mean, I'm optimistic about the fact that we can do this when it's hard because it's going to get much harder 
maybe not this pandemic, but the next pandemic, saving the world through global warming or some other disaster that comes. Like it's going to get bad again. And it gives me hope that we can get through it because we're getting through it now. I know we're just at the beginning of this, but I have faith that we'll find a way through this somehow, some way. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful thought to end on. So Russell Nolte, thank you for joining me. I'm going to put some links out on the episode notes for people to be able to find you and your books that I think would be really interesting for people to understand a little bit what's behind the inspiration for those books, which I feel might seem pessimistic, but I think are all rooted in hope and optimism for the future. I hope so. Yeah. Again, I I would not recommend you read Sorry for Existing, but aside from that, (laughs) uh, especially if you read The Gods vs. Chronicles, which is my main universe, I think I thread through like hope and the hopelessness pretty well, uh, certainly in The Vessel or any of my standalones as well. Uh, So yeah, I hope you'll check them out. Fantastic. Russell, thank you for joining me for a great conversation. And thank you for having me. This conversation uncovered a lot about Russell, including how his journey, his perspective, and his values shaped his writing. It's no secret that the creative process is often born from a complex combination of frustration and hope, not just for writers, but also for music artists, visual artists, and other creative people who have found their muse through frustration and hope. This is the foundation for self-expression, which is a fascinating and unique component of the human experience. It is, in many ways, what makes us unique. And, for those who are able to channel self-expression through creative outlets, it is a way to leverage personal agency to help shape our world and our future. Russell holds strong political beliefs, with which you may agree or may not. However, taking this journey with him uncovers how his beliefs inspire his writing and helps us understand more about him as a person navigating this world. Listening to honest stories and seeking to understand one another not only deepens our understanding of those that hold different views, but also allows us to break down division and find common ground on those things that make us all human. In 2019, Stanford worked with a nonpartisan organization, Helena, and others on a project called America in One Room, where they brought more than 500 voters together that represented the wide range of political views in America. They found that while discussing important political issues and understanding the perspectives and experience of others, participants of all political backgrounds often soften their views, with a full 95% stating that they learned a lot about people who hold different beliefs. This is the core of a strong democracy. It isn't about right or wrong, left or right. It's about dialogue, listening, understanding, and self-expression. This is what helps us find common ground build a strong sense of community, and ultimately build a better future. One of the fascinating things about this conversation with Russell was his hope, the fact that this time has in many ways strengthened our sense of community, which was unexpected for him, and restored a bit of his fractured faith in humanity. As we learn from this time, let's work together to maintain this strengthening sense of community. That's something that also gives me hope as we work together to shape a better future. So, go on, 
go help shape the future. To learn more about Russell Nolte, check out his website at russellnolte.com. That's Russell, N-O-H-E-L-T-Y.com. You can also learn more about the America in One Room project by following the links I've included in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.